Cast. Of course we still love you. With Claire Breverton, Alex Clark, Ian Harrison, Matt Malenta, Benjamin Shaw and Charlie Walker. The Jogcast, September 2016 edition. Hello everyone and welcome back to The Jogcast. I'm Charlie and joining me in the studio are Ben. Hello. And Matt. Hello. And it's a, it's a special episode this month. Yes. One year ago this month, Charlie and I took over The Jogcast. So when The Jogcast started going incredibly downhill... That's that. <laughs> some might say, yeah. Um, and this is actually the first time we've presented together in a while, so, um, yeah. Yeah, when was the last time? I don't know, it was quite a while ago, but yeah, we took over from Indy a year ago this month, and we're the fifth executive producers, and we'll be handing it over in January, I think, because we'll both be going into our final writing year, up writing up mode. Oh. So. Yeah, so you won't be hearing Someone our voices else. for that much longer. I'm no, sure we'll certainly be on fewer credits. Yeah. Um, so, thanks, Matt. <laughs> Maybe you'll be hearing Matt a bit more. Yeah, let's hope so. We'll pass it on to you. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Oh, yes, of course. In the show this time, Alex Clark interviews Dr. Francesco Shankar about AGN, and Ian Morrison and Claire Bretherton take a look at what's happening in the September night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Ian with this month's news. In the news this month, a planet orbiting Proxima Centauri tree rings and solar storms, and a tabletop black hole. This month, the scientists at the European Southern Observatory revealed the discovery of an exoplanet orbiting Proxima Centauri, the closest star to Earth other than the Sun. The newly discovered planet is the first one known in the Proxima Centauri system, has been named Proxima b, and is a mere 4.2 light-years, or 40 trillion kilometres, away from us here on Earth. In an article published in Nature, a team led by Dr. William Anglada Escudé of Queen Mary University in London described how the planet was initially detected and confirmed by the Pale Red Dot project. By making incredibly precise measurements of the motions of the host star with the HARPS spectrograph, the astronomers were able to see the star wobbling as the planet orbited. In star planet systems, like any many body system, all objects affect each other, meaning, as well as the massive star in the centre pulling on the outer planets and causing them to orbit, those planets too exert a pull back on the star. This means that rather than all orbiting the dead centre of the central star, the bodies in the system in fact all orbit a common point known as the barycenter. In our own solar system, the complex gravitational interactions of the Sun with the eight planets means the barycenter follows a convoluted spiral pattern with a centre which is sometimes inside the Sun, meaning it merely wobbles, and sometimes outside, meaning the Sun actually has its own very small orbit. By tracking the motions of Proxima Centauri, the pale red dot team were able to measure the wobble of the star caused by the orbiting planet, which in turn allowed them to infer some of Proxima b's properties, including the mass and orbital radius. Proxima b has caused much excitement. Not only is it the closest exoplanet ever discovered, but it also has the possibility to be an Earth-like planet in its host star's habitable zone. Weighing in at between 1.3 and 3 Earth masses, Proxima b has the right mass range for a rocky planet, and also lives at a distance from its parent star, which means its planetary equilibrium temperature, the temperature it would have 
from only considering heating by the star is a mild 234 Kelvin, compared to 255 for Earth. This is just minus 39 degrees centigrade, and means, with the correct atmospheric composition to give a greenhouse effect, the conditions may be right for liquid water on the surface. However, these are just possibles. Whilst we know the mass range, we do not know the composition of Proxima b, which could be either rocky like Earth, or gaseous like a miniature Neptune. And, in addition, anyone planning on making the trip to Proxima b may want to think twice. The star Proxima Centauri is not at all like our Sun, but is a red dwarf, a long-lived star which is much smaller and much cooler. This means that Proxima b is very close to the star, only 5% of the distance from the Earth to the Sun, and years on Proxima b last only 11 Earth days. Such a short orbital period means Proxima b is almost certainly tidally locked, with one side of the planet continually facing towards the star, and one away. And even worse, Proxima Centauri is an extremely active, regularly flaring star, increasing in brightness by up to 50% several times per year. These flares give out huge amounts of X-rays, which could cause significant damage to any life, and indeed any atmosphere, on Proxima b. Even if chances for habitability may look small, Proxima b is still a great find, showing yet again the frequency and variety with which extrasolar planets occur. We may even be able to send a probe to Proxima b, with the Breakthrough Starshot project suggesting it is a destination for one of their tiny, solar sail-powered craft. Travelling at roughly 20% of the speed of light, one of these probes could reach and send signals back from Proxima b about 30 years after launch, with the current aim of a first mission in around 2036. This may seem long-term, even to astronomers used to decades-long projects, but is something which seems definitely worth waiting around for. Also in the news this month, the coinage of a new science was made in astrochronology, the use of evidence of solar storms visible in tree rings to date historical events. Humanity's previous best way of dating events over the past few millennia has been through radiocarbon dating. When organic matter dies, it ceases to absorb the carbon-14 isotope from the atmosphere. The carbon-14 then slowly decays, whilst the stable carbon-12 isotope does not, meaning the carbon-14 to carbon-12 ratio can be used to date the organism's death, and its subsequent use by humans as food, writing, or building material, and so on. Unfortunately, this radiocarbon dating is only so accurate, as the amounts of carbon-14 in the atmosphere vary both in time and regionally across the globe, meaning most dates are only good to a range of 1 to 200 years. This means that many historical records of ancient societies are not anchored to the Gregorian calendar used in the West today. The first confirmed absolute date in the European calendar is 763 BCE, in the Chinese calendar is 841 BCE, and in the Americas is only the arrival of Columbus in 1492. Civilizations with sophisticated calendars and record keeping, such as Mayans, Assyrians, and Egyptians, existed long before these dates, but we do not know exactly when these chronologies fit relative to each other and to our own, floating around with error bars of up to a few centuries. In work by Oxford University archaeologist Michael W. D. and astrophysicist 
Benjamin Pope, a radical new way of anchoring these timelines is proposed. The new sources of information come from Mayaki events, first described in 2012, which are large, sudden increases in the amount of carbon-14 in the atmosphere, thought to be almost certainly from large energetic solar events, such as solar flares. These Mayaki events can be dated, as they are also visible in tree ring records, where the new annual growth of bark can be seen in the cross-section of a tree trunk. Given a successfully calibrated tree ring record, many of which exist, Mayaki events can then be associated with a single year of occurrence, with two so far known in 775 and 994. Because Mayaki events are short-lived and global, these spikes in carbon-14 can now be used to precisely date any organic matter used by societies in those years. Non-Mayaki variations in carbon-14 are comparatively slow, meaning if large variations in the carbon ratios are observed, across objects which are otherwise known to be around the same relative date, a precise absolute date can now be given, with Dee and Pope focusing on the use of a good mathematical tool, Gaussian processes, for detecting these sudden jumps in carbon-14. If previously floating chronologies can be anchored, then there is much to learn, with the data potentially helping us understand how ancient civilizations rose, fell, and interacted with one another. And finally, a scientist published results this month from a tabletop black hole. Rather than being a true black hole, an object so massive even light cannot escape its gravitational pull, instead, the model black hole consisted of a condensate of ultra-cold atoms with sound waves trapped inside. Goal was to model the emission of Hawking radiation from a black hole. According to Stephen Hawking's seminal work from the 1970s, the pairs of virtual particles which are constantly popping in and out of the vacuum of space are occasionally separated by the event horizon of a black hole. One particle falls in, never to return, and the other escapes, making the transition from virtual to real. By cooling rubidium atoms into a Bose-Einstein condensate in order to make their quantum behaviour readily visible, physicist Jeff Steinhauer of the Technion Israel Institute of Technology in Haifa was able to trap quanta of sound known as phonons by creating entangled pairs of phonons and then accelerating the supercooled atoms. Steinhauer created an analogy to a black hole event horizon and confirmed in principle, that it is possible for something which looks like Hawking radiation to exist. There are, of course, a few caveats to the work. It relies on the atoms being in a true Bose-Einstein state, and has so far only been able to generate entangled phonons at relatively high energies. And theorists may look askance at the usefulness of the imperfect analogy. Leonard Susskind of Stanford University in California pointing out that the system lacks a key feature of black hole systems, which makes Hawking radiation such an important concept in physics. It will not evaporate. The evaporation of black holes and the question of what happens to the information from the pair particles lost inside them forms the basis of the black hole information paradox, the solution to which is regarded as a key component in any future theory which unifies gravity and general relativity. For now, though, the result remains an impressive technological feat and an excellent piece of incongruity. A black hole in a basement. Thanks for that, Ian. Now Alex interviews Dr. Francesco Shanker about AGN. Hi, I'm here today with Francesco Shanker from the University of Southampton. 
Um, Francesco, so do you want to give us a, a, a quick background as to uh, where you're from, where you've been, and the kind of research you do? Sure. Hello, good morning. Hi, Alex. So it is a real pleasure to be here uh, talking to you today. So I've been invited here by Re Dr. René Breton, and uh, with whom uh, I've shared uh, a, a position, let's say, in, uh, in Southampton. We are both hired in the same, at the same time in the University of Southampton as lecturers, and then he moved over here, uh, University of Manchester. Uh, so I am um, I'm a theorist, and I work uh, on the mostly on the coevolution of uh, supermassive black holes and their host galaxies. So what that means is that uh, the universe is filled with uh, with uh, with uh, galaxies. Each galaxy has, uh, most probably, we believe it has uh, at the center a supermassive black hole. That is a compact, very compact object of the size comparable to the size of the solar system and as massive as uh, 10 to the 6 to up to a few, 10 to the 9, so that means few billion solar masses. So that you can imagine uh, taking billions of suns and compactify them in a region comparable to the solar system. That is a supermassive black hole. And these have been detected uh, dynamically by measuring the velocity of stars or gas at the very center of, ga of galaxies, or at least those galaxies that we can resolve with, the, with the telescopes like the Hubble Space Telescope. And uh, by measuring the dynamics of stars and gas at the very center of these galaxies, we can then infer uh, the mass of the central dark object because because it's a black hole you usually don't see it directly you can't but you can infer the, its presence by his uh, gravitational influence on the surrounding environment okay so that's really interesting so um one of the main things you just said was that we we expect these supermassive black holes to be in every galaxy is that is that something which astronomers are, are fairly confident of? That literally, the, at the in the center of every galaxy, we expect this, this object. Yeah. So this is a, actually a, a good question. So uh, we don't think that we are living in a special region of the universe. We think that the universe is homogeneous and isotropic. That means it has similar features in all directions. So if we are looking at properties of galaxies within the local volume of the universe, we don't expect this to be different from any other region in the universe, just because of this isotropy of the universe. So because we can observe, because our technology, present technology, allows us to measure black holes only in some special galaxies, that means that special in the sense that they are close enough to us that we can actually see the very center of these galaxies and resolve with with Hubble in their center. So they are special in this respect, but not for any other reason. And uh, so that so that is the reason why astronomers believe that each galaxy should have a central black hole. Our own galaxy, our Milky Way, does have a supermassive black hole. In fact. We, uh, the measurement that we now have of the center of the Milky Way is one of the tightest constraints we have on a supermassive black hole. Mm. Yeah, that's that's quite an interesting point actually, that, because 
obviously the uh, the black hole in our in our back back garden in the Milky Way is obviously fairly close by. In the context of then, you know, if you want to find other black holes, they're going to be uh, in other galaxies, and hence many many megaparsecs away, and obviously then much harder to resolve. Right. That's right. Um, so you in your in your talk you were doing uh, physics with a sample of of these supermassive black holes. How many galaxies were you working with? That's right. So, uh, so far, astronomers have been able to collect a sample of, say, around 80 galaxies with uh, dynamical measurements of supermassive black holes. So, So what that means, dynamical means that their masses have been inferred from the dynamics, as I said before, of the surrounding uh, stars or gas. Now, these are extremely challenging measurements. So this is the reason why, even after decades of uh, studies or efforts from the astronomical community, we can we, we only rely on a handful of these uh, okay. galaxies. So uh, what exactly do they measure when they look at these far-off uh, galaxies with their black holes? Right. So it can, the, the measurements, the techniques to measure black holes dynamically are different in our own Milky Way, it, which is the best measurement, it was just the dynamics of the very center, center, central stars that are orbiting around the, the Sagittarius Hades, the very center of the, our own galaxy. In other galaxies, you infer the, the, the dynamics, like, for example, using uh, some gas, like in M87, which is at the center of the Virgo cluster, the, the very bright elliptical, which is at the center of the Virgo cluster. There you can measure, in fact, you can infer the mass by measuring the Doppler effects, that means the velocities of the surrounding gas at the very center. In other, in other ways, in other galaxies, you need to rely on other techniques, such as uh, using uh, the so-called Poisson equation. So that means you, you measure the light profile of the galaxy from, uh, down to the very center, you transform this into a mass profile and then you, and, and the, this you can transform it into a density, you can relate this to the potential, and by solving the equations of potential and density, you can then, um, uh, you can then infer what dynamics of uh, the very central region you need, that means what mass you need at the very central regions, mm-hmm. to recover both the mass density that you observe and the potential and the and the velocities of stars that you observe. Mm. So it's a more complicated technique, which is a bit more involved, but still, mm. that's the best we can do yeah. right okay. now. And they do this mostly with the Hubble Space Telescope. Yeah, mostly with the Hubble Space Telescope because you need uh, telescopes to be in space first of all, uh, in order to prevent, uh, in order to avoid the problems of seeing, and uh, atmo- from the atmos- from the atmospheric. Uh, seeing of the earth and then you need um, and then you need obviously instruments that they are in space and they need to be uh, built in such a way that they can have, give you they provide you with the best resolution as possible and clearly Hubble has, has, has been a big improvement in our view in our of the universe so um, in, yeah, in your talk you uh, you have this sample of, of 80 galaxies um, and you were talking about relationships between the, the mass of the host galaxy as a whole and the mass of the, the black hole that's at the centre and, and you were saying that 
you know, over the past decade or two or longer, people have sort of sought out this relationship between the two and how yes. one can affect the other. Um, so before we get on to exactly how you, you you might be changing these ideas, could you give us a quick history of what people have thought so far? That's right. So uh, in the last 30 years or so, there have been uh, thousands and thousands and really thousands of papers from the astronomical community, from both theorists and observers, in trying to uh, describe and give uh, a meaning to the correlations putative correlations that have been observed between the mass of the black hole and in fact the mass of the whole galaxy of the host galaxy or its velocity dispersion that means the random motions of stars what has been observed so far by astronomers is that there seems to be a rather tight correlation between but if you plot on a if you plot mass of the black hole on the y axis and on the x axis you plot the mass of the galaxy or its velocity dispersion mm-hmm. you see that all these points get aligned into mm-hmm. a more or less defined line yeah. and uh, and this uh, this correlation has uh, takes the name of the so called coevolution of black holes and galaxies so because there is this correlation of between these two different systems so let me say that these are very different scales we are talking about. The black hole is at the very center center of the galaxy. It's a sub-parsec scales. And the galaxy is at kiloparsec scale. So as I said in my talk, it's basically you are comparing a grape, the size of the grape, to the size of the Earth. So, But these two systems that are so different from each other, they know about each other. At least this is what, mm. what people have seen by plotting these quantities together. Um, and uh, so theorists and observers have tried to understand these properties and this these data brought together two communities that were not really working together before but now that but now they've been working together in the last 20 years or so the community of the galaxy evolution side and the community of the Aegean side they were work and then they brought together because they thought now they think that there is a clear coevolution of these two systems and we need to work together to understand it yeah, cool. Uh, so, sounds like there's a very keen interest in this area of physics with people, uh, I guess, to mention that both theorists and observationists are t- really trying very hard to tackle this. Yes. Um, so, the, the interesting uh, point that you've come to Manchester to discuss was how you have a different, a slightly different take. You've sort of taken a step back and said, okay, we see this correlation, but let me just look at it from maybe a different angle. So, so what was your take on this? That's right. Scenario? So, uh, we have just uh, published uh, a paper on the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, and there will be a press release in May on our results, organized by the journal. So, the we have, in fact, allow me to say, discovered a new um, property of these scaling relations. In fact what we claim is that there is no correlation at all, at least in stellar mass. And the only correlation that really exists between black holes and galaxies is only with velocity dispersion. We were able to, u- to, we were able to um, conclude this by using different techniques, statistical techniques. Uh, Monte Carlo tests, we ran a lot of Monte Carlo simulations, as well as we have done tests of, on the so-called residuals on the, scale, on the data. So basically, if a variable depends on other two variables, 
we fix one variable and we take the residuals around the mean and we correlate the residuals to ch test which is the most fundamental property linked to the black hole mass in this in the specific in the specific case so all these tests are showing us that because of uh, some preselection that was made by observers on this 80 galaxies and this preselection means it only the best galaxies the, that means the best resolved galaxies were measured with a dynamical mass of the black hole this led to a significant bias observational bias in the sample so this sample is not fully representative of in fact the full underlying the population of local supermassive black holes and we have demonstrated this in our paper in fact the sample shows that a fixed stellar mass the, these galaxies, the specific hosts of these supermassive black holes, tend to have significantly higher velocity dispersions with respect to the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which is a survey of the whole local universe. So, uh, so in Sloan we have millions of galaxies, we compare mm -hmm. the properties of these galaxies with the properties of the hosts of supermassive black holes, and we have identified some differences, mm -hmm. some key differences. And these key differences can be fully explained by uh, by selection effects. Now, once you have taken fully into account the selection effects, you can still demonstrate that there is a clear dependence between black hole mass and host galaxy properties. But this, the only relation that we have found so far is with velocity dispersion, and the 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 relation that people observe with stellar mass, it's actually not true, nor not real. It's a selection effect. Ah, okay, okay, yeah. So the the selection effect, um, I, I guess, is quite a, a common theme in astronomy. In that, you know, we try and observe many things out there in the universe, and obviously, we're limited by um, we're limited by how clever we are in building instruments to observe them. So clearly, we can't see everything. So, um, it's quite, so in this case, we're seeing you know, eight, these eighty or so galaxies. Um, with the Hubble, which is a great instrument, but you know it's still not perfect. It's, it's still you know yeah you could build um, you could build something that was a hundred times bigger than Hubble, and, and then you'd get maybe less biased um, uh, results. So just to just to hone in on some of those points you mentioned, so you're saying that the mass of the host galaxy, so this line they see where they the, they, they see the mass of the host galaxy and the ma mass of the black hole. Um, you're saying that that's no, that's just a, a byproduct of the bias, and in fact, it's not a correct correlation, and that in fact, uh, it's it's the velocity dispersion that's the key parameter. Yes. So clearly, in a galaxy, in especially in an elliptical galaxy, which is a typical host of massive black holes, uh, the velocity dispersion is correlated to stellar mass and in fact also size through the so-called fundamental plane of ellipticals, which is basically the virial theorem, gm over r equal sigma square, proportional to sigma square. This is basically the, the general equation for any gravitating system in equilibrium. And ellipticals do obey this relation, so there is a correlation between velocity dispersion and stellar mass. But the point is, which is the most fundamental property linked to black holes and what can we can what what physics is actually playing what physical mechanism is actually driving these correlations so this was the main 
question okay uh, that that pushed uh, theoretical models in the last 20 years to try and answer this uh, uh, this type of observations and this type of modeling so what people uh, so what we find is that velocity dispersion that means the random motion of stars around the center of mass of the galaxy of the host galaxy that is the key parameter and that can be allow me to say easily explain or there is a natural explanation for this which comes from the so-called quasar feedback this was a model which in fact was put forward the very first uh, uh, model uh, or explanation was put forward in the late uh, 90s even before the m sigma relation was actually proposed by observers already theorists like joe silk and martin reese had um, come up with this uh, bright idea that uh, black holes should correlate with velocity dispersion of the stars because of uh, the so-called quasar feedback that means black holes when they accrete gas they can be the central engine of quasars of luminous quasars uh, i will come back to that in a moment but if that is the case they, this at the moment of their quasar phase they can inject so much energy in the surrounding medium within the dynamical time of the host galaxy mm. that can impact seriously the evolution of the host galaxy by for example stopping halt, halting completing the star formation rate in the galaxy for mm. example so this can create this link between black holes and galaxies so those two different scales and this quasar feedback it can be shown it naturally provides the correlation between black hole mass and velocity dispersion right yeah um so so quasars just quickly uh just give a 15 second explanation of, of, of what exactly a quasar is and does yes so a quasar is uh, one of the most luminous sources in our universe they are observed up to very high redshift redshift six or seven so quasars uh, are uh, uh, beasts luminous beasts that they, they, are, they are we believe they are powered by accretion onto a central supermassive black hole that's what a quasar okay. is and the black hole is extremely efficient in providing this uh, the reason why we believe it's a supermassive black hole because this engine is very efficient in producing luminosity so okay. when the black hole accretes gas it becomes very efficient and it can release a lot of energy much more than nuclear reactions order of magnitude is more efficient than nuclear reaction okay. stars uh, so what sort of percentage efficiency are we talking about for these so this is uh, um, what I'm talking about is around 10, 20, 30 percent efficiency with respect to 0.008 of uh, so fractions of percents of what you expect from nuclear reactions. Wow. Yes, that's, that's really sort of... Yeah, you don't realise in these nuclear reactors how inefficient they are, in, really. And yes. Most of the energy is not is not released in an efficient man manner. And then you look at these objects in the universe, supermassive black holes, where you've got lots of gas falling in, creating onto them, and then they're really just pumping out light, basically, um, at 10, 20, 30% efficiencies, and that's really quite staggering an yes. efficiency to, to convert potential energy into into luminosity. Um, that's correct. So uh, this whole process, if it's so efficient, it can then clearly feed back into the galaxy. Um, so is it the case that the so this velocity dispersion, this, this high randomness movement of, of stars, is it the case that the, the supermassive black hole uh, 
causes the the large velocity dispersion of the stars, or is it the case that only you only see the the largest black hole black holes in galaxies which already have large velocity dispersion? Well, we don't yet have a clear answer to this question. Uh, but uh, we believe that it's a self-regulated process. So both systems are growing together during the quasar phase. So the galaxy is forming stars, the black hole is accreting gas and it's growing until uh, the quasar feedback kicks in and then uh, holds star formation and at the same time it holds the accretion on the black hole and the black hole basically starts starving from that point onwards. But again, the details of this process is extremely delicate and difficult to model mm -hmm. and there are several groups in the world that are trying to understand this in detail using different techniques different hydro sim simulators and uh, it's a very difficult problem but yes the basic idea is the following that there is a self-regulating mechanism happening over there at that moment okay then so having sort of uh, come, having sort of come up with this idea that we, we we're now so, so from, from the sample of 80 galaxies, you now have this relationship which can predict black hole masses. That's the difficult thing to measure. So if we can have a relationship to predict that, that's great because we can, if we've got a relationship between black hole mass um, uh, and other properties, we can then predict black hole masses for other galaxies. Okay. So what implications does that have for the, the wider community of astrophysics where black hole mass is clearly an important parameter for many parts of astrophysics. How does that, how is this going to impact um, yes. the wider community? Yes, this is a, a good question. So uh, our results have uh, a series of implications. So uh, let me give you uh, a few examples, key examples. One is clearly we now have a better understanding of what's the interplay between black holes and galaxies, So the, which is quasar feedback and the M-sigma relation. So this is uh, impacting the field of galaxy evolution a lot. Uh, this is the very f one of the first. The second is that on average, our results show that uh, black holes should be on average less massive than what previously thought. In terms of stellar mass at fixed stellar mass, black holes could be uh, a factor of uh, 10 or at low masses even up to 100 less massive than what previously thought from uh, from the direct measurements this would imply that uh, if uh, for example the gravitational waves expected from black hole black hole mergers should be less strong than what previously proportionally less strong than what previously thought and this might explain the re uh, why so far we have still not detected from pulsar timing arrays uh, any gravitational waves coming from supermassive black holes. This might be because the, the overall population of black holes is less massive than what we think, and therefore, they're, uh, they're, again, the efficiency of, of um, creating uh, gravitational energy is less. The chirp mass associated to each pair of supermassive black holes is less, proportionally less than what people thought before. And this, at fixed merger rate, still provides less signal. And this might be a solution to why we still don't, do not detect anything from pulsar timing arrays. And uh, another, another uh, uh, point is that we are the, the fact that the black hole masses are less reduced should 
also imply that to provide the same quasar emissivity, integrated emissivity, as we observe it in the universe, should imply that the that the that the if that supermassive black holes are rapidly spinning. So there is a correlation between the geometry of supermassive black holes and their efficiency. This comes from GR, from general relativity, and uh, in practice the more the the black hole more is the more is spinning the black hole the more efficient the black hole is expected to be the reason is because the particle can get closer and closer to the rotation axis and still still be stable and be able to emit energy and uh, so the reason our our measurements of lower mass densities of black holes should imply that on average black holes are more should be more efficient to produce the same amount of emissivity of quasars that we actually observe and uh, this implies that possibly all supermassive black holes on average should be so-called far um, care black holes that means they have a geometry that is uh, identified with spinning black holes so that it sounds like uh, this result will have quite a particularly with gravitational waves, are quite a big impact. Um, I think we're fortunate enough, fortunate enough to have already seen gravitational waves, so that's at least, uh, uh, at least you're only hurting the pulsar, <laughs> the pulsar teams that are hunting for them. Um, okay, so, so one of the last things, looking, looking to the future, um, you, you've done this study with a sample of 80, um, and you think we're, you're understanding the statistics of this sample very well now, has enabled you to to draw the conclusions that you have um, looking to the future obviously in increasing this sample size would be would be great can you can you see that happening or is it have we sort of reached a limit where of, of the instrumentation where a sort of hubble and we really need sort of a next generation of telescopes to be able to increase that sample yeah size? that's correct so we will need the we will need to wait uh, telescopes like elt 30 meter telescopes possibly to really make a step forward in this direction to get to to really realize the impact of this bias mm. observationally yes that's correct okay uh well thanks very much for Thank talking you. to us today francesco it's been a pleasure um uh, also it's, it's great to welcome you here because I, I started my phd in southampton uh around about the same time as when you started Southampton. that's correct yes and then uh, i i moved up to manchester uh, sort of halfway through my phd so it's good to see you up here um and i'm sure i'll we'll cross paths again soon but thanks for joining us today for the jodcast thank you alex thank Cheers. you thanks for that alex so firstly you may remember from the survey that we offered a special prize draw for one lucky winner who helped us out with their feedback well nick johnson uh was selected as our winner um, so congratulations, Nick. You've won a brand new signed copy of Eyes on the Sky uh, by Sir Francis Graham Smith, who's one of the astronomers here. And he was in the last episode. And he was in uh, a previous episode, I think. Yeah, was it July Extra? I think we talked to him. That's on its way to you. It's signed by the author and by all of us here at the Jodcast, so happy reading. And now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those bits we can't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about a weird pulsar um, the pulsar is called J1119 uh, minus 6127, so it's uh, minus 61 degrees latitude, which means it's very, very low in the sky, so we can't see it from here. It's a southern hemisphere source. Um, and it kind of relates to my own research, so I'm going to sort of give you a bit of background. So one of the things I'm involved in is a, a proposal to look for 
magnetar-like flares in ordinary radio pulsars. So magnetars are extremely strongly magnetised pulsars and they're known to have occasional uh, flares of high energy uh, emission every so often. Um, these so-called X-ray flares, and we call them soft gamma repeaters sometimes, or anomalous X-ray pulsars sometimes. And a few years ago, there was one particular example where one of these X-ray flares was coincident with a glitch. Now, a glitch in a pulsar is where it suddenly spins up. Pulsars are normally very accurate clocks, but in this case, um, occasionally a pulsar will just suddenly uh, speed up in its rotation and sometimes relax back down to its pre-glitch rotation rate. Sometimes it'll over-recover, sometimes it'll under-recover. But either way, this this timing event happens where what we think is going on is the superfluid interior uh, of the neutron star is spinning at a different rate to the exterior and occasionally the two couple together and the interior forces the exterior to speed up and we see that as a glitch. Now the fact that one of these glitches was coincident with an x-ray flare in um, a high B radio pulsar, not a magnetar, suggests to us that there is actually that magnetars and normal radio pulsars that have strong magnetic fields are not in fact two separate classes at all but they're just two ends of a continuum and yeah if you like ends of a continuum that continuum is decided by the strength of the magnetic field so if you've got an ordinary isolated radio pulsar that's got a strong magnetic field if you turn that magnetic field up a little bit more you effectively elicit magnetar like behavior in this uh, pulsar so what we're doing is we time us and parks time uh, around 16 pulsars that aren't magnetars, they've never been shown to have magnetar-like activity, but they've got extremely strong magnetic fields. And what we're hoping to see is if we spot a glitch in one of these pulsars, we're going to trigger the Chandra X-ray Observatory to immediately follow up on that source and look for this X-ray emission. Because if we can demonstrate that this X-ray emission is coincident with timing glitches, then we can effectively bridge this gap between normal pulsars and magnetars. One of those pulsars that we're timing is this one, J1119-6127, and it did a bit of a weird thing. It did what we wanted it to do, but it did it the other way around, and so we failed to catch it. What it did was there is a onboard SWIFT, which is an X-ray telescope that's in orbit, is a burst alert telescope, so an instrument which just looks for flares of emission on the sky and slews towards them to see what it was. This pulsar underwent an X-ray outburst that then triggered SWIFT to go and look. And what it found was that this X-ray source, the position of this X-ray source, was compatible with the position of this pulsar. I should say that this thing is also an X-ray pulsar, not just a radio pulsar, so it has pulsed X-rays as well. It's extremely high energy. And what they found when they went and looked at it for a little bit longer with this swift X-ray telescope was that the energy of the X-rays was somewhat higher than it usually is. The pulsed X-rays are usually soft X-rays, so very low energy towards the ultraviolet end of the spectrum. But when they looked this time, the energy of each photon they received was much, much higher. And that's new. It's never done that before. That's something completely new. The X-ray pulses are coming in at roughly the same phase as the radio pulses should be. So that means that it's in phase. They're arriving at the same time. But they also found that it had glitched. But they saw this in the X-ray data. So the pulse has glitched. It's undergone an X-ray flare. And the energy of the X-rays has gone up. As if that weren't enough... We would then went and looked with the Parkes telescope in the radio at this thing and found that it was off. So something really strange has happened to this pulsar. We don't quite know what it is. Firstly, it underwent this flare. Then there was a glitch that we saw in the X-rays. Then we noticed that after this event, the radio emission had switched off and stayed off. 
And now, on the 11th of August, uh, a, a short paper came out which reported that the radio emission had in fact started to come back on. But it's much, much weaker than it was before it underwent this bizarre pulsar sneeze that it seems to have done. So this pulsar is extremely interesting because it potentially gives us an opportunity to bridge that gap between isolated radio pulsars and magnetars. So we can, I suspect now, now that it's undergone this weird set of phenomena that we don't really understand, we will be monitoring it much more frequently than we otherwise would have been. Normally we time pulsars roughly once every two weeks for maybe six or 12 minutes, something like that. I suspect this thing will go on to a daily observation for a while while we can characterise its behaviour and try and piece together what happened. So pulsars switching off in the radio or the X-ray, that's not an unheard of phenomenon? It's not an unheard of thing, but there's only been one instance in the past where we've seen X-ray emission that was coincident with a glitch. There's another instance in which we've seen a glitch that has been accompanied by a change in the shape of the radio pulse, so they're not perfect heartbeat-like pulses. The, the pulses themselves have individual characteristic shapes, and those characteristic shapes tend to be unique to a particular pulsar. So in one instance in the past, we've seen um, in this pulsar a change in the profile shape that occurred at the same epoch as, as a glitch. But never have we known one to switch off, either because of or coincident with a glitch. So this is new. And when it switched back on, was, it, um, was its period the same as before? Or? Yep, it's consistent. The, the, the times of arrival that we measure are still phase-connected, so they're still arriving when we expect them to, if we account for the glitch that occurred. Um, it's still in phase, it's still behaving. It's just fainter than it was before. the pulse is fainter, the shape of the pulse is slightly different but it does appear to be getting somewhat brighter. So do you think that in the future this could happen again? There could be a periodic cycle of this? It's possible. I mean, glitches tend not to be periodic so much. Glitches tend to be more sort of sporadic. It's it's not easy to predict a glitch. If it was, it'd be really useful to us because we could say, this pulse is about to glitch, let's go and watch it and take observations of it every hour or so and we could get a really good profile of what happens in the glitch, how the glitch recovers and what the pulsar does to return itself back to its pre-glitch state. Um, as it is, glitches tend to be sporadic because we don't really know what causes them. We suspect it's something to do with the interior or there could be some kind of plastic creep effect going on in the surface that's to do with the decay of the magnetic field. And one of the reasons that people are really interested in glitches is because it will help tell you about the, uh, the internal structure of the neutron star. Well, that's it. It's the equation of state that we want to know. We want to know how the mass of a neutron star scales with its radius, and that's something we don't know. It's not like a normal material where if you know the pressure of a substance and its volume, you can get at its temperature and vice versa. That gives you an equation of state. But the equation of state for neutron star material is completely unknown. And so studying glitches, particularly studying the recovery of glitches, can give us really good information on, on what's going on inside the neutron star. So I'll place a link to some of these short little papers um, in the show notes and you can go and read about this interesting little pulsar for yourselves. And so for my on end, I'm going to talk about something that's just hit the news one day ago from time of recording. It's some big news about our nearest neighbour, the nearest neighbour to our own sun. It's a star called Proxima Centauri. Um, and on the 25th of August 2016, scientists announced that a new exoplanet had been discovered orbiting around Proxima Centauri, and they've called this planet Proxima B. And what's very exciting about this exoplanet is it is, in fact, in the habitable zone of its solar system. And so it's. I'll give you some facts about this planet. It's... Uh, it's about 1.3 Earth masses, so it's an Earth-like planet. It's got a period of 11.2 days, 
and its semi-major axis is 0.05 astronomical units and one astronomical unit is the distance from the Earth to our own Sun. How so does that compare to Mercury? So it's it's about eight times closer to its home star than Mercury is to our own Sun. But Proxima Centauri is actually a red dwarf star. So this is the most common type of star in the Milky Way. They are very faint and this star in fact isn't able to be seen with the naked eye. It's luminosity is 0.15% of our own sun and its effective temperature is only uh, 3050 kelvin its radius is 14% of our sun and its mass is only 12% so it's very small and it's not very bright mm-hmm. which means that the, uh, the habitable zone which is the zone where liquid water can be sustainable on the surface of a planet uh, is much closer to the star and this Proxima b resides flat bang in the middle of this habitable zone but seeing how close it is to the sun, can it can it be tidily locked? That's a very good question, and that's one of the first things that was answered by the people who wrote the paper announcing the discovery of this planet. So I guess we'll do some jargon busting first. And a tidally locked system is a a system where the planet one side always faces the star, and the other side always faced away from the star. Similarly to how. We can see one side of the moon we, from, from the Earth pretty much. One we, side of the moon. Yeah, we exactly. see slightly more than fifty percent. We see of the slightly moon. more so than fifty percent. The, the, the orbital pa- the, the spin the spin rate of the moon on its axis is the same as its orbital period around the Earth. But the yeah. same the dark so, side of the moon is because there is a dark side which we, we never see. Yeah. And so uh, this is a It's not really dark. No, because it's lit up by the sun. Yeah. But um this planet may well be tidally locked. And this has the effect of having one side of the planet, which is very, very hot, and the other side, which is very, very cold. And you might originally think that this might mean that the planet wouldn't be hospitable to life. However, uh, the paper does talk about this, and it does say that work has been done researching this sort of thing, and a stable atmosphere can be achieved on a planet that is tidally locked. They go on to talk about other issues uh, which may make it inhospitable to life for example even though this uh, this m star this red dwarf is very faint it has a considerable amount of uv flares and x-ray flares as well so is it quite a young star so it's a little bit younger than the sun it's about 4.8 billion years old an interesting thing about this sort of star is uh, is what is called a fully convective star which means that it can burn a lot more of its hydrogen than a star like our sun can and that means that it will last a lot, lot longer in its main sequence than our sun will, which will go into a red giant phase and then become a white dwarf later on. Uh, these these stars, these red dwarfs, actually have a lifetime which is longer than the current age of the universe. Yeah, so any, any red dwarfs that have ever been born are still alive. Exactly. And so, well, we'll have had a lot of time and we'll still have a lot of time for life to develop, which is another reason that people are very excited about this sort of thing. So one thing that I mentioned earlier was that uh, one problem with life occurring on this planet could be a lot of ultraviolet flares, which will uh, obviously break down cells in our own sort of life on our own planet. That's a very inhospitable. However, people have already jumped on this and started uh, doing some talking about what sorts of life could inhabit a, a planet which has a high ultraviolet. And what kind of atmosphere would be necessary to deflect incoming ultraviolet rays? So they don't talk about the atmosphere, they actually talk about life that currently takes UV rays and 
upscales it to longer wavelengths. It basically uses the ah. UV light in order to um, in order to uh, get some nutrition, uh, and then it emits light of a longer wavelength, visible light. So some coral does this mm. at the okay. bottom of the sea. Uh, if you shine a UV light on it, it will start glowing green. So one of these four papers, which has come out, and this is bear in mind one day after the announcement <laughs> of this planet, uh, basically says that. Uh, if you can see a UV flare and you can look at, at you can look at the planet and it starts glowing, that might mean there are aliens there. So this is the first of many pieces of research being done into the habitability of a planet like this. Just send PhD students there in enough coffee and we can survive everywhere. Enough coffee and Netflix. Yeah, enough coffee, <laughs> Netflix, and maybe some biscuits. And mm, you know, yeah. who you cares be- about UV light? So I wonder, is there enough Netflix uh, to get us there and not be bored? Would you exhaust the amount of Netflix? Oh, there's a lot of rubbish on, on Netflix, Netflix, so I don't yeah. know. Um, um, so this star, I don't know if I actually said that this star is four light years away from us. Yeah. Um, so if you could travel at the speed of light, it would take you four years to get to this planet. Which you couldn't do. Which you couldn't do. It's against laws of physics. The closest that we're going to get anytime soon is um, a project which we talked about on the April episode... 2016 of the Jogcast, which is Project Starshot. So if you're inter- interested, you might want to take another listen to that episode. Um, but this is a, a project which is being funded by a Russian billionaire called Yuri Milner. Stephen Hawking is also involved in this project. And this project aims to send teeny tiny little satellites to another star system. Um, and it will aim to propel them using lasers and reach 20% of the speed of light. And so that would take 20 years to get to a system like this. It's quite a dangerous speed to go out, though, because at that speed, even an atom, even hitting an atom, is potentially catastrophic to your uh, your spaceship. It's actually been researched, published recently, that looks into into what you said, um, what would actually happen to the spacecraft when it hits an atom, uh, because even though atoms are small, as you said, are these speeds the, the energies... Uh, could easily actually melt the whole spacecraft. Mm. Uh, but I think the, the hope is that, uh, well, there are not many atoms in the in, in the space. Space is almost uh, a vacuum, I guess. Yeah. I suppose that would mean you have to it, assess it, the probability it, along a line of sight. Yes, what is your probability of hitting a it's single not, atom? It's not a complete vacuum, but yeah. we're hoping that, uh, you know, not many atoms are present and the plan is just to send... I don't know how many, but when I've heard the announcement, it wasn't talking about one or two spacecraft. It's more like a fleet. It was about sending a whole swarm of these, and I think the assumption is that some of them will simply get destroyed on the way, and and only a handful uh, will make it to the the final destination. So even if we send, I don't know, a thousand or ten thousand of them, that they're talking about them being a millimetres in, in size, if I remember correctly. So if we send 10,000 of them, you know, if five or ten make them uh, the way to Proxima Centauri, I think we can we, we would be able to call it a success. Mm. Uh, I, well, I guess exactly as you said, they'd have to weigh up the probability of hitting an atom mm. and then adjust the number of spaceships that they sent in yeah. order to make it more likely that one wouldn't be destroyed along the way. Um, but even at 20% of the speed of light it would still take 20 years in order to get there. And they don't they don't plan on sending any of these things out anytime soon. I think it's going to take two to three decades. Even after getting to a star like this, it's going to take another four light years to send back any images 
that you can collect from the star system. Coming up, Jodcast 2060. 2066. 2066. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. How is it found? How is it found? Yeah. Uh, so there are two different ways that you can detect exoplanets. Um, there's obviously the way that most people think about is the transiting method, where a planet passes in front of the star, which causes a notice- noticeable dip in the, uh, in, in the luminosity of the star. And you can say, yeah, something's transited. Well, because this is such a faint star and such a small planet, no evidence as of yet has been found using this method. The method which they used instead was taking into account the Doppler shift of the star. So this is a method which is best explained by thinking about how the police catch you when you're speeding with a speed gun, for example. Uh, If you've got a source of electromagnetic waves and it's moving away from you or towards you, then the spectrum of the star will be shifted. This is called redshift or blue shift. And so as a planet orbits a star, it will exert a little tug on the star. And so depending on where the planet is, it will change the velocity of the star and it will do this on a period which is the same as the period of the planet orbiting the star. And so they've, they've assessed the light curve of this star over a long, long period of time. They've been collecting data since 2013, I think. And they finally built up enough of a signal to say that there is a, there is a, a periodicity at 11.2 days, which is the um, period of the planet around the star. And I think that they say they're going to be looking for transiting now that they can predict when it's going to pass in front of the star. But there's only about a 1.5% chance that it does actually transit. They really hope it does, because obviously if it transits the star and we can see it, then we can look at its atmosphere and Mm -hmm. we can look at its spectrum and we can look at its atmosphere and maybe chemical composition and tell what this planet is actually made of. And possibly even detect a, a biosphere. And if you look at the atmosphere and see there's oxygen or ozone or something that likes to react but is is there, if the atmosphere is for some reason out of equilibrium, then that could be a really good reason to So to that go. is, yeah. So that is a very very exciting bit of uh, science that has literally just been announced as yeah. we're recording. We're all really excited about this. Actually, everyone's very excited about this because I mentioned the Starshot project. They already had a target star, and this target star was not Proxima Centauri. It was actually it was actually Alpha Centauri. Ah. which uh, is the second closest star. And the reason that they'd chosen that was because there are planets going around the star system. But a rocky planet in the habitable zone of the closest star just makes it even closer and means we'll get there even faster. So I think they might be thinking about considering changing their plans right mm. about now. So stay tuned. Yeah. I mean, even if even if this is a completely inert planet where there's just no life and no possibility of life, the fact that we can easily study relatively easily study a planet around another star with another planet formation history another star formation history especially around a trinary system whatever this planet is made of it's really interesting and we're going to get a lot of new data that has real implications for things like the drake equation i yeah i do wonder what the implications for the actual the statistics of rocky planets orbiting Mm. inhabitable zones are and whether this will affect that because uh two stars right next to each other with potentially habitable planets, ours and Proxima Centauri's, that one of the reasons we haven't found this sort of planet before is because it's hard, because they're so small Mm. and stars are very far away. So if this is ushering in a new era of discovering these planets, maybe we'll find that they're actually more common than we think. It's an exciting time. It is. Indeed. 
Matt, what's interested you this week? Oh, um, I'm, I'm slightly closer home. Uh, I'm going to talk about SpaceX, uh, these amazing guys who I think are revolutionising the space industry at the moment, to be honest. Um, so on the August 14th, uh, they had another successful uh, drone ship landing on the drone called Of Course I Still Love You, which you may have heard at the very beginning of this podcast. So that's the sixth successful landing of the Falcon 9 rocket when they send something to the outer space and the first stage of the rocket comes back safely and can be hopefully reused. Uh, as I said, it's a sixth successful landing. Uh, it's a fourth successful landing on a drone ship and fourth successful landing on a drone, sh- drone ship this year. Uh, so, so far, they had a bit of a, a series of unfortunate events uh, happening with the drone ship landings up until April the 8th, uh, when they had their very first a successful landing and and it was all over the news that they finally made it after after so many not failures but landings that didn't go according to the plan and some of them were really close uh, so most of the time they've actually managed to hit the barge but they've managed to hit it a bit too hard and then things either broke off or or, or the 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 rocket came at a slightly wrong angle and just tipped over uh, but on the April the 8th, they've managed to have the very first successful drone landing. And, you know, everyone was really excited about it, and it was all over the news. BBC was writing about it, CNN was writing about it, every news agency was writing about it. Uh, the most important news agencies, as Jotcast, I think we've mentioned it. Yeah, yeah, yeah we we've mentioned it. It's in the so, top ten. It was, yeah, um, exactly. I think we had a, an image as our front cover image for that episode as well. Exactly. So all the most important people were covering this, uh, including us. Uh, and, you know, then actually they did it again and again and again. Uh, so on May the 6th and May 27th, so within two weeks pretty much, they've managed to, to repeat the same feat. Mm. And then on June 15th, they had a bit of a mishap. Uh, they've they've managed to crash in into into a drone ship, uh, and I bet all the news jumped on that one. Uh, yes, all the news jumped on that one because you know they've they've done it when they had the first successful one. Everyone was was happy, and then this sort of this this died off. But when again it they failed, it was again oh SpaceX is failing again, and then all that stuff. And then on July eighteenth, they had a successful ground landing. So. As I said, they had six successful landings, four of which were on the drone ship, and two of them were on the on the ground. Uh, and then again, August fourteenth, so eleven days ago from this recording, they've managed to land again on a drone ship. Uh, so hopefully, now they have enough first stages that they hopefully uh, will start reusing them, mm. and we will see. Because uh, cause I know a couple of weeks ago, the first one that landed successfully, uh, or one of the first one that landed successfully, they again retested it. Uh, no, the very first one that landed successfully, I know it's going to be in the museum. They're keeping that one for posterity, I think. Yeah, so, yeah. so they, they, they're keeping this one so they can uh, walk across it and, and be like, yeah, 
we've landed this one. <laughs> uh, but I know that one of these has been tested recently. There's been a ground engine test to see whether they're actually capable of relaunching them and how much work they will have to do. But one of the sad things about all of this stuff is that I want to maybe briefly mention is I had a look about whether there was something about this last one successful drone ship landing and it seems that except the very uh, sort of technically oriented websites uh, you, you really don't find this information on the news anymore and oh, SpaceX makes it into the news but there are many many other private companies that do similar stuff uh, it's bigger and, and smaller and, and you just don't, don't find it anywhere in the news because I think after the first two, three uh, successes we have, we just start taking it, it, it for granted that, oh, it's not rocket science when, when well, it really is rocket science, <laughs> both proverbially and literally is, is, is rocket science. It is a very difficult thing mm. to do, uh, seeing how, how many uh, unsuccessful landings they had so far by mm unsuccessful, I mean, they weren't able to recover this spacecraft that they are hoping to reuse. And, you know, these sort of things are very important for missions like for Starshot Project, when we gonna develop the technology, of course, for these spacecraft, but we have to somehow place them on the orbit, and we're gonna have to place a lot of them on, on the orbit. Uh, the satellite industry, where you're gonna need GPS, and you need replace current GPS systems, put, put new ones. Uh, so there is a lot of need for, for the, this development, and I think everyone should be really excited about it. We should be uh, hearing about this more more and more, I about mean, these successes. Anything that helps reduce the amount of space junk that we're putting up in the atmosphere is really good as well. So Well, exactly. That's becoming a real problem. There are debris fields up there that are posing real risks at the moment to other satellites, and in fact the area where geosynchronous satellites are is becoming dangerously congested so being able to recover materials will not only make satellite not only make people like Greenpeace happy and that fewer materials are being used to actually construct these things but also it'll help make... us get off the planet in the future exactly we should avoid scenarios like in the film gravity mm-hmm. which as you said well that, that was fiction totally but but this is definitely an increasing concern so we should go both ways. First, reduce the amount that we send now. We're mm. trying to reuse the resources that we have, trying to reuse the spacecrafts that we have and just resend them for however many times it's possible, like we've done with the space shuttle. But also uh, be able to maybe bring some of this junk back that is already there in space and, mm. and scrape it back. So I think public should be really interested and should be informed really and we shouldn't take these things for granted the big yeah. the, the big disasters are after the, the first one success and multiple successes the big disasters are always the ones yes, that hit the, the news. big disasters are it's... always the ones in the news hopefully we're not gonna hear about any big disasters with with spacex either with unmanned missions or when they plan in the couple of years time to to send their dragon capsule with the Falcon space travel, with hopefully first people on board, we're not gonna hear about any catastrophic events there because that 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 would be a horrible thing. Uh, and as I said, we take this these landings and the entire space exploration currently a bit for granted, and we shouldn't the same way as we shouldn't take another person for granted. 
And it's Ian Morrison with his Night Sky. The Night Sky for September 2016. Well, the nights are drawing in now. We've got more time to observe the heavens. And we can still just about see all of the major planets as well as Neptune. So it's not a bad month. What about what we can see in the heavens first? Well, as dusk falls and it gets darker, you might spot Arcturus setting over on the western horizon. And of course, that lovely part of the sky, including the so-called Summer Triangle, which is made up of the three stars Altair in Aquila, Deneb in Cygnus, and Vega in Lyra. And these will be well high, slightly to the west of south. I do love that part of the sky. It's one of the most beautiful that we have. As one moves over towards the southern and slightly southeastern parts of the sky, we now begin to see the square of Pegasus. The top left-hand star, Alpharats, is actually part of Andromeda, and that's the starting point for finding the Andromeda galaxy by what's called star hopping. You simply move up and to the left a bit, one star, and then a second star, then turn sharp right, one not quite so bright star, the same distance beyond, you should find the Andromeda galaxy. And the other way of finding it is to look up for Cassiopeia, which will be above it, towards the north, and the right hand, or the lower V-shape of the constellation stars, will actually point down towards Andromeda. And on a dark, transparent night, you should be able to see it with your unaided eye, but with binoculars you certainly will. But in fact, you're only really seeing the central part of the nucleus, which is much, much brighter than the outer parts, making it quite a hard thing to image. Many photographs actually burn out the central part unless you're very careful. Well, above Deneb, moving to the north, we have the constellation of Cepheus. Not very bright. Its brightest star is Alderamin. And hence, carrying on, you come across to Polaris, the pole star, close to the north celestial pole. Keeping going right down to the northern horizon, you'll find the two stars of first Dubhe and then Merak, the pointers that form part of the plough of Ursa Major. Well, what about the planets? We'll start the planets with Jupiter. Jupiter passes behind the Sun, and that's called superior conjunction, on the 26th of September, and so will only be seen low in the western sky after sunset for the first week or so of the month. It starts September shining at magnitude minus 1.7, has an angular size of 31 arc seconds. Given a low horizon and clear skies, one may still be able to see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere and the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. We'll have to wait until mid-October for it to be seen again in the pre-dawn sky. Well, Saturn can also be seen after sunset low in the southwest. It lies in the southern part of Ophiuchus moving slowly eastwards away from Antares in Scorpius, shining with a magnitude of plus 0.5. One hour after sunset, at the start of the month, it will only be about 10 degrees above the horizon, so the atmosphere will limit our view of its 16 arc-second disk. By month's end, it will only be a few degrees elevation at this time, so early this month is really our last chance to observe it until it passes behind the sun and reappears in the pre-dawn sky. 
The ring system, which has now opened out to 26 degrees to the line of sight, almost its maximum, could still be seen along with Titan, its largest satellite. What about Mercury? Having dropped low into the dusk in the western sky in late August, it passes through superior conjunction on September the 12th. However, by the last week of the month, it will reappear into the pre-dawn sky when it brightens by almost three magnitudes in just nine days. For magnitude plus 2.5 on the 19th, and actually too faint to be seen, I think, up to minus 0.4 on the 28th, when it reaches greatest elongation, that's at 18 degrees west of the sun, and then rises about 1.5 hours before sunrise. It'll then be best seen about 45 minutes before sunrise at an elevation of 9 degrees in the eastern sky, so you will need a good low eastern horizon. Mars. Well, Mars is moving eastwards across the heavens, away from Saturn and Antares, and can still be seen after nightfall, low in the south-southwest. It fades from magnitude minus 0.3 to plus 0.1 as September progresses, whilst its angular size drops from 10.5 to 8.8 .8 arc seconds. On the 21st, Mars passes from Ophiuchus into Sagittarius. It will actually lie at a distance of one astronomical unit on the 19th, and given its low elevation and not particularly large disk, it's unlikely that any features could be discerned on its surface. Well, finally, Venus. Venus begins September just a few degrees above the western horizon and sets about one after the sun. As the month progresses, this interval increases slightly to 1.25, whilst its brightness increases a fraction from minus 3.8 to minus 3.9 magnitudes. At the same time, its gibbous disk fattens from 11 to 12 arc seconds diameter. It's not really a very good month to observe it. Well, what highlights do we have in September? Actually a good month to observe Neptune with a small telescope. Neptune, with its tiny angular diameter of 2.3 arc seconds, comes into opposition, when it's nearest the Earth pretty well, on the 2nd of September, so will be seen well this month. Its magnitude is plus 7.8, so it should be easily spotted with binoculars lying in the constellation Aquarius, as shown on the chart that I provide in the night sky page. Just search for night sky, Jodrell Bank. It rises to an elevation of about 27 degrees when due south around midnight. Given a telescope of 8 inches or greater diameter and a dark transparent night, it should even be possible to spot its moon, Titan. On September the 3rd, soon after sunset, you might be able to spot, low in the west-southwest, given clear skies and a very low horizon, the planets Jupiter, Venus, and a very thin crescent moon. Venus lying between the two. Um, you might be able to spot the Earth's shine on the unlit part of the crescent moon. That's light that illuminates it, reflected from clouds on the Earth. I suspect binoculars may well be needed, but please do not use them until after the sun has set. Around September the 5th to the 9th, after sunset, 
you can spot Saturn and Mars in the south-southwest. Looking after sunset in that direction, you should see Saturn, which will be above and to the right of Antares, that's in Scorpius, a red giant star, and Mars over to the left of Antares, whilst both are in the southern part of the constellation Ophiuchus. On September the 28th, after sunset, Mars lies just 1.5 degrees below the Lagoon Nebula M8 in Sagittarius. You'll need clear skies and a low horizon in the south-southwest. But that would be a very nice thing to either observe or even image. On September the 29th, before dawn, you might be able to spot Mercury and a very thin crescent moon. So looking east before dawn, given, again, a low horizon, if clear, it should be possible to spot Mercury just to the lower right of a very thin crescent moon. That will be quite an observing challenge, I suspect. So although we can see all the planets this month, none of them are particularly well placed. And finally, I often suggest something to look at on the moon's surface. And this month, on the nights of the 9th and 22nd of September, would be a good time to observe the Alpine Valley. It's a very interesting feature on the moon. Obviously, you'll need a small telescope. Close to the Terminator, on those two nights, is the Apennine mountain chain that marks the edge of Mare Imbrium. Towards the upper end, you should see a cleft across them, which is called the Alpine Valley. It's about seven miles wide and 79 miles long. A couple of nights later, you should also see, as the moon moves towards full, the rather lovely crater Plato. It's very dark, and there's also the young crater Copernicus at the end of the Penan mountain chain. It's a very interesting region of the moon. A very good program to help you with your lunar observing is called the Virtual Moon Atlas. You can download it for free. And this is where I look at the terminator on the moon and find out when it's close to the objects I suggest you might observe. So have a go at that. It's a very useful program. Well, best of luck. Quite a bit to see. And, of course, a bit more time to do it in. Thanks for that, Ian. And now we're going to move on to the southern hemisphere night sky. And we're going to welcome back a voice which has been missed very much by lots of people. It's Claire Breverton's back from Maternity Leaf. Uh, she was last on the 2015 August episode of the Jogcast. And during the interim period, Haratina has done an excellent job doing the night sky south. Uh, but don't worry, you're not going to miss her because we're already planning on working out ways that she can... Uh, stay in the Jogcast episodes so you'll hear more from Haratina very soon but for now it's very nice for our Antipodean listeners to have back the voice of Claire Breverton with the night sky where you are. Kia ora and welcome to the September Jodcast from Space Place at Carter Observatory here in Wellington New Zealand. It's hard to believe that it's now a year since the birth of my daughter Seven whose name means star in Welsh by the way so after taking some time out to spend with her I'm back to pick up the reins of the southern night sky Jodcast. Huge thanks to Haratina for doing such an amazing job in my absence. September marks the start of the spring here in the Southern Hemisphere, and as we head towards the equinox on the 23rd, our days begin to lengthen. Sunset and sunrise times change rapidly at this time of the year, with the sun dipping below the horizon an hour and a half later at the end of the month than at the beginning. By the end of September, the sun won't be setting until nearly half past seven. 
Whilst we're looking forward to some better weather, this also means fewer hours of darkness to get out and observe our southern skies. All five naked-eye planets continue their planetary dance this month. Jupiter, Mercury and Venus begin the month close together above the western horizon after dark. Venus is the brightest and the highest of the three, easy to spot even in the twilight sky. Jupiter, with its golden glow, is below, with fainter Mercury to the left. Mercury slips quickly into the twilight sky, with Jupiter following by mid-month. After passing between us and the Sun, Mercury will make a morning appearance during late September, but it won't be rising until twilight is well underway, making it very difficult to spot. Venus moves quickly up away from the other two, passing up to the right of the 0.9 magnitude spiker around the 19th of the month, and by the end of the month it will be setting over two and a half hours after the Sun. Mars and Saturn continue to form a triangle with Antares, high in the northern sky after dark. Saturn is almost directly below Antares, and the two remain close together throughout the month, gradually dropping lower in our evening skies, and setting by around midnight at the end of September. Mars, the brightest of the three, begins the month just to the right of Saturn Antares, but holds its position in the sky as it moves eastwards against the background stars, drifting up and to the right, away from Saturn as the month wears on. The bright stars Canopus and Vega mark north-south after dark this month. Canopus is the second brightest star in the nighttime sky, and the brightest in the southern constellation of Carina, the keel. Carina was once part of the great ship Argo Navis, which sails across the southern skies. In 1752, the French astronomer Nicolas Louis de Lassay split Argo Navis into three smaller constellations of more manageable size. Carina, the keel, Pupus, the poop deck or stern, and Vila, the sails. Tomari Canopus is known as Atutahi or Altahi, meaning standalone, because of its isolated position outside the band of the Milky Way. Canopus represents the Araki or High Chief of the Heavens, and is circumpolar here in New Zealand, always visible in our nighttime skies. Vega, in the constellation of Lyra, is the fifth brightest star in the sky, and at just 25 light years away, one of the brightest in our local neighbourhood. It is also one of the best studied, and was the first star outside our sun to be photographed in 1850. Vega is also extensively used by astronomers for photometric calibration. It is used as a zero point to define the UBVRI photometric system, first introduced in the 1950s and extended in the 1970s, to classify stars according to their colours. Along with the nearby bright stars of Deneb in Cygnus the Swan and Altair in Aquila the Eagle, Vega forms part of the Winter Triangle, as seen here in the Southern Hemisphere. Altair is easy to spot, lying along the band of the Milky Way, midway up the northern sky after dark. Deneb is harder to see, just skirting along the horizon from northern parts of the country. Between Vega and Altair is Albereo, or Beta Cygni, the beak star, marking the head of the swan. Although it appears as a single star to the naked eye, Albereo is in fact a double star and a lovely sight in a small telescope because of the easily seen contrast in colour between the blue and gold components. The two stars are 35 arc seconds apart, meaning they are separated by 60 times the diameter of our solar system and may take 100,000 years to orbit each other. The brighter magnitude 3 yellow star has also been found to be a binary star in its own right but a much larger telescope and excellent observing conditions or complicated image processing would be needed to resolve it. Albereo is best viewed using low magnification, as the colours stand out more clearly when the stars appear close together. 
You might also try defocusing your telescope a little to spread out the star's light, making the colours easier to see. A similar distance to the other side of Alta is Alpha Capricorni. Whilst it has the Alpha designation, it is actually the third brightest star in the zodiac constellation of Capricorn, the goat, and is commonly known as Algeidi, meaning the kid. Alpha Cap is another double star, but this time the effect is purely coincidence. Although these stars appear close together, their proximity is just a line of sight effect, with the two components positioned at 109 and 690 light years away. Alpha 2, or Secunda Geodi, is the closer and brighter of the two. A giant star with a luminosity around 40 times that of the Sun, and an apparent magnitude of 3.58. Alpha 1, or Prima Geodi, is a supergiant over 5 times more distant, but at 5 times the mass and over 1,000 times the luminosity of the Sun, it is only slightly fainter in our skies, at magnitude 4.3. Both are evolved G-class yellow stars, at a similar temperature to the Sun, and Alpha Geodi is a multiple star in its own right, with at least 3 faint companions nearby. Prima and Secunda are located 6.6 arc minutes apart, around one-fifth the diameter of the full moon, and can be separated fairly easily, even with the naked eye. As Haratina mentioned last month, the Milky Way is spectacular in our evening skies at this time of year, passing from Vega and Alta towards the north, through Sagittarius and Scorpius overhead, and down to the southern horizon, just to the west of Canopus. Midway up the southern sky, you'll find Crux, the Southern Cross, with the pointers Alpha and Beta Centauri above. Alpha Centauri is another multiple star system, and at a distance of 4.37 light-years, is the closest star system to our Sun. The two main components, Alpha Cent A and B, are both similar in mass and luminosity to the Sun, and are close enough that they would fit within the orbit of Pluto. They are too close together to be resolved with the naked eye, but a pair of binoculars or small telescope will easily separate them. The third component, Alpha Centauri C, is a small, faint red dwarf star, also known as Proxima Centauri, which can be glimpsed even in a small telescope. Lying 0.2 parsecs, or 15,000 AU from the AB pair, that's around 500 times the orbit of Neptune, Proxima Centauri's current distance of around 4.25 light-years makes it the closest star to our Sun. On the 24th of August, a team of astronomers led by Guillem Anglada Escude announced that they have discovered a potentially Earth-like planet orbiting around Proxima Centauri. The planet was identified using radial velocity measurements of its parent star. As the planet orbits, it causes the star to wobble, and this wobble can be detected by measuring the Doppler shift in the star's spectrum. Named Proxima b, the newly discovered planet takes just 11.2 days to orbit its star, putting it at 1 of the distance from the Earth to the Sun. But, because Proxima Centauri is a much smaller, fainter star, the energy the planet receives is around two-thirds the energy that reaches Earth. So Proxima b lies firmly in the habitable zone, the region of space where any water on the planet could be liquid. With a minimum mass of 1.3 times the Earth, this opens up an exciting possibility that not only have we found a planet around our nearest star, but that this planet may be Earth-like and potentially able to support life. Wishing you clear skies from the team here at Space Place at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that and welcome back there. And now on to the feedback. Yep, we have some posts this month. We actually have two pieces of post. The first of which is a lovely card um, from Liz Cole from New Zealand who says... Dear Jodcast, I've been listening to your podcast for the past seven years. I'm often a little out of my depth with some of the content, but what I really enjoy is the passion, knowledge and genuine enthusiasm from the Jodcast team and those interviewed. 
I emigrated from the UK 13 years ago and I'm returning from New Zealand for the first time in September 2016. Welcome back. Jodrell Bank is on my list of places to visit and I'm so looking forward to seeing the actual place and going to the visitor centre. Keep up the awesome work. Love it. Liz Cole. Thanks for that, Liz. And the card um, looks like a piece of pencil art from M.C. Escher, um, a Dutch artist, called Reptiles, made in 1943. So that's great. That will go on our wall and look very good. Thank you very much. And the second postcard is from Sarah Corner from Iceland. It says, hey there, Jotkas, I had to send you this card since you love Poe so much. Yes, we love Poe. We definitely do. Yes, so send as much as possible. Obviously, it is July, so very, very light. Too light for a Rory to be seen other than on postcards. Jot on. Yes, well, just to explain, the postcard shows a beautiful northern light, a beautiful shade of green, so... Uh, I guess it's going to look lovely lovely on our wall of postcards. It is definitely too light to see them at the moment, so this postcard would definitely remind us of, of what we're actually missing here in Manchester. We can rarely see any northern lights. We can rarely see the sky. So. We can rarely see the sky, exactly. That's why we use radio telescopes in here. <laughs> uh, but yeah, thank you very much. And, and keep on sending these these beautiful postcards. We definitely do love them at some We do love postcards. And in yeah. fact, even you don't even need to go on holiday to send us a postcard. Send us one from where you live. doesn't matter where it is. Even, even from even Manchester. If it's send us a postcard. We'll end up sending ourselves postcards up. <laughs> <laughs> and we've also had two emails um, both very nice one from Hein Duplessis uh, who says hello from South Africa and he's a long time lurker who just wanted to thank us for the love and care that we put into the podcast <clears throat> he loves the in-depth reviews and the reports that are simply missing from other Astro podcasts and he hopes to visit Jodrell Bank someday you definitely should and we've got another email from R.C. Davidson who also thanks us for the show and he particularly enjoyed the July 2016 Extra edition. He unfortunately missed filling in the survey. I'm sure we'll do another one in a few years' time. That's up to the next we people won't. in charge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but he wanted to drop us a line to tell us how much he appreciated our interviews with astronomers uh, who are actually, actually doing research right now. He says it's refreshing to hear their stories directly from them and not processed by the news. And that's one of the, the things I love doing as well because you get to talk to them and ask them the questions that you want to know about. And sometimes you think your question is really silly, but actually it's a question lots of people wish they'd asked. So it's always a good opportunity. Yeah, and we learn a lot from interviewing these people as oh, well. Yeah, And technically we are astronomers as well doing research. That is true, yeah. Mm. Have you done a, an interview yet, Matt? No, I have not. No, mm. you can interview me if you want. I'll hold you to that one. <laughs> On Facebook, we have a couple of pictures sent in by Chris Walker, who says, Can you see a Kiwi in the Milky Way? I took this 30-second ISO 6400 shot using a 6.5mm fisheye on a Canon 500D from Bali. And he shows us a picture of the centre of the Milky Way, uh, which uh, has a small patch of it obscured by a dark cloud. So the, the background stars are obscured by this cloud, so you see a very dark band, which is a sort of Kiwi shape. Um... I think somebody said on Facebook it also might look like a woodpecker. 
Um, but he's posted both pictures, one actually containing a real kiwi in case you fail to spot it. So head on over to Facebook and have a look at that. Thank you very much, Chris. We also had a Facebook post from Ben Dyer, who said, amazing August episode, guys. So thank, thank you very, very much. much. And Francis Ken says, thanks for the latest Jodcasts. I thought the interview with Sir Francis was absolutely fascinating. Did he really say he was 93? He certainly is 93. Um, he didn't sound it. On to the subject of preponderance. I can't decide whether I should try and get the word into conversation as much as possible or whether to set you the challenge of getting it into as many episodes as possible. At the very least, Fiona should include it in her thesis. Uh, we've spoken to her about this. She's going to. We also had a Facebook message from Sarah Cornell, who may well be the same Sarah Cornell who sent us that postcard. I think it must be. What are the chances of that? I don't know, we'd have to calculate it. Mm. And she says she can't stop singing the tune Love Cats in her head by The Cure with the critical modification Jod Cats. And we've heard that as well. Minnie's been singing it quite a lot, so don't worry. Yes, Minnie's been been singing it with monotonous regularity, I think. (laughs) Uh, Preponderance of Facebook messages this month. Yeah. Uh, Last one comes from Andrew Horner. Uh, He says that both July episodes uh, were excellent. I think he refers to normal and the July extra episodes. Uh, that there was so much in with Professor Stelfini on pulsars and gravitational waves that he had to listen twice so far. We hope that you listen as many times as you can. And he enjoyed also another person who enjoyed the interview with Professor Sir Francis Graham Smith in the July Extra edition. Uh, Andrew also says that he found our discussion on the impact of Brexit on UK science very interesting, but also, also depressing. Uh, sums it up quite well actually I think it does um, anything on Twitter? indeed uh, one from Daniel Grinock who says love you guys and he'd love to hear epic casts on the great attractor and Lenny Susskind's holographic universe we covered only easy stuff on this show this is pretty <laughs> difficult I don't think we do um, I actually replied to Daniel and said we will uh, we will see what we can do about that if Lenny so, Susskind yeah. ever wanders over to us Absolutely, he's alive. Yeah. Is he alive? Um, yeah, we've we've got dark energy people here who can talk about the great attractor. So yeah, we'll. We also have a tweet from Jen Gupta who tells us that we should probably update our iTunes picture. I think that refers to the fact that she's in our iTunes picture. Four of the five people in that iTunes picture are now in Seldom Serious. Mm. Uh, the other one is Neil Young. Um, who's an SKA astronomer. We should really update that because none of the current Jodcast team are in it. I think Megan's in it, but she is shortly moving on to other pastures. So we should find a way to update that. I don't know how to. I I also don't know how to, but I, I mean, we could look into it, but it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a legacy of the Jodcast. Yeah, I guess so. Way. Can... I, uh, I'm surprised that she wants us to get rid of it. Um... Could just keep it as a legacy iTunes account and open a new one, to be honest. Ooh. An after hours, not safe for work, Jogcast. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> 18 plus. Old bloopers. On Flickr, we've had a new image sent in by user Eramen, um, a really beautiful image of M51, a nice optical image. So head on over to Flickr because there are quite a few images on there that we often don't really talk about. Uh, there's a guy on there called Joseph Brimacum who takes lots of pictures of supernova candidates that he's, look, he's looking for. So um, I think we should definitely know. be linked on the show notes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. You can find us on iTunes. Please review us. You can also find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. 
on Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jotcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. So all that's left is for the thank yous. Thank you very much to Dr. Francesco Shankar for the interview. Thanks to Ian Morrison and Claire Breverton for the night skies and to Minnie Mao for the website write-ups. The editors were Alex Clark, Claire Breverton, Monique Kenson and Andy May. And the producer was our very own Charlie Walker sitting just right next to me here. So until next time, Jordan! Jordan.